Hey, this is Annie. And this is Samantha. And welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. And we're super excited today because it's time for another female first. Uh, <laughs> yes. Which I means, like that. I just, I thank you. I, you need a like, choir sure of one. Sound effects. Yeah, like, <sighs> yes, because we don't have a producer yeah, with, you know, audio all the libraries haven't already to do done. that. We like to make our own here. To be fair. Yeah. This is all I can contribute, really. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> and this means that we are once again joined by our friend and coworker, Eves. Happy to be here. Yes, thank you so much for joining us, Eves. Um, you can hear Eves, and I'm sure a lot of you have, seven days a week on this day in history class and on your new show, Unpopular. Unpopular. It's very exciting. Unpopular. Yes, which as we record, recording times are strange. Right. But as we record, debuted today. And Super Producer Andrew was a part of that as yeah. well. It's really awesome. Very cool stuff. You want to talk about that briefly? Sure. I will talk about Unpopular. So Unpopular is also about history. But the show focuses on one different person in every episode. And in each episode, we kind of chart this path from how they resisted and how they rebelled and how they challenged the status quo during their time. So people like Fumalayo Ransom Kuti, who stood up for women's rights in Nigeria and Nigerian independence and anti-colonialism, to people like Galileo, who I'm sure a lot of us are familiar with his story, but the whole Galileo affair and the heliocentric theory of the sun being at the center of the universe. And we just kind of look at how that can be used to think about resistance today and how we think about contrarianism today. Good word, contrarianism. <laughs> Samantha's like, that might describe me. I'm going to put me. that in my dictionary. <laughs> <laughs> and um, that is fitting because I think the person that you brought today is perfect fits right into that. She does. And you know what? You kind of know people's stories and you know that they were rebels and you know that they were radical, but when you just get deep into their stories and you realize how many things they did that were just so, so challenging and amazing. Yeah. yeah. Her stories is, is one of those. And I'm talking about Lorraine Hansberry. Yes. And um, as we talked about um, in our first rendition of this Female First it is important to keep in mind context of when people are accomplishing these these first. Um, and what we're talking about today is Broadway. On Broadway, yes, oh, yes. So um, let's get into it. Can you tell us a little bit about Lorraine Hansberry? Sure. So I always do. I just want to reiterate your point because that's something I would love to preface this with every time and thinking <laughs> how we think about first and. Lorraine Hansberry's first were that she was the first Black playwright and the youngest American to win a New York Drama Critics Circle Award. And she was also the first Black woman to have a play produced on Broadway. So uh, those are awesome titles and awesome awards, but those didn't give her work any more merit. Her work was already amazing before those things happened. Um, Her work stands on its own as a great art. And even then, Lorraine did so much more than just her art. Like, her writing was super important and made a difference in the Black community and in arts and drama overall, but she also did things outside of it. So those are titles that are part of her entire existence, basically. Getting back to Lorraine, um, so she, I would love to start with a quote. So (laughs) 
I tried not to include a ton of quotes in this, but uh-huh. I just love quotes. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> <laughs> so I would love to start with one if, if that's okay with you, Annie. I think yeah. we'll, we'll allow it. Give we'll allow quote. it. Okay. I need it. So she said, I was born on the south side of Chicago. I was born black and a female. I was born in a depression after one world war and came into adolescence during another. While I was still in my teens, the first atom bombs were dropped on human beings, and by the time I was 23 years old, my government and that of the Soviet Union had entered actively into the worst conflict of nerves in history, the Cold War. And she said this in March of 1959 in a speech that she gave at the American Society of African Culture's first conference of Negro writers. And I just wanted to start with that quote because I feel like it kind of contextualizes the time that she was born in and what kind of challenges she and her family faced and, like, how her upbringing could have been because I feel like it just—it helps to frame people's lives in that way when we're thinking about the things that they faced and what they were up against. Talk about trauma. Right. Wow. Yeah, very tumultuous. Period. Periods. Yeah. There are all Period. several, several periods. Different ones. <laughs> huge, huge hallmark period. Right. Like, like you said, she was born um, in Chicago, or I guess like she said, and then you read. <laughs> she was born in Chicago in 1930, on May 19th. And yeah, she she died January 12th, 1965, very young. Yes. Yeah. Yes, yes. She died very young. And I try not to get in this space because so many people who did really important thing that history died early. So I try not to get in this space when I'm reading about their stories and you get to see how much they did in such a short period of time and say, what would they have done if they were, they they lived past that point? I can really, because I get really down when I think about that. You think about the legacy that they created in a short period of time and then like, what if they would have done more of those things (laughs) in the next decades? So that is one thing about her story that's very, very saddening. I know there's, um, a book coming out about her. And I think the author kept reiterating, like, don't forget, like, get in, there is right. that mind space and you feel like, oh, it's cut so short, but don't forget all of this she stuff did. she did do. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. I'm a little bit, like, self-conscious because I'm older than her. I'm like, <laughs> damn, oh. all the things that she did and I'm nowhere near <laughs> going weird. anywhere in that part of my life. And I'm like, well, now I feel bad about myself. Thanks, Lorraine. <laughs> And I'm like, yeah. Well, I'm just gonna go eat chocolate on my couch now. Well, you know, go we, eat cheese. We shouldn't compare. Everybody's path and journey is different. We shouldn't compare ourselves. <laughs> to others. I want to celebrate her, not be about me. But damn, <laughs> Gina, I'm always here to inspire. <laughs> yes, yes. You always have a nugget of wisdom. Yes, Eve. it's true. It's true. We're gonna keep you around. <laughs> so let's talk about uh, if you if you don't mind, um, kind of her early early history and what led her to to Broadway. Yeah, so I think a good place to start is just her kind of family experience and family environment and what it was like to grow up in Chicago. So she was the child of Nanny Perry Hansberry and Carl Augustus Hansberry, and she was the youngest of four children. Her mother was a teacher and a ward committee woman, and her father worked in real estate. He did pretty well in real estate. He actually created this small-scale kind of kitchenette for small apartments that kind of brought him that success in real estate during the Great Depression. And her uncle was named William Leo Hansberry, and he was a professor of African history at Howard University. So you kind of see the scholarship and, like, 
the the kind of parentage and the kind of like role models and leadership that was in her life. Mm -hmm. um, so her father was involved in activism. He was involved with the NAACP as well. And he had a huge impact on her activism and so did her uncle, whose influence likely helped shape her views on the black liberation movement. So she went to kindergarten in Chicago's South Side as well. And so as a child, her, as we know, her parents were uh, involved in activism. So she was around artists and activists like Paul Robeson, Walter White, Duke Ellington, Langston Hughes, and W.E.B. Du Bois, who's going to come back into her her story later on. Wow. And she was she maintained contact with a lot of these people. Paul Robeson is back in the picture later on and had like a hand in her activism and her involvement in the community. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's some big names. Yes. <laughs> some ca big name cameos in her story. <laughs> big names. Um I wish I was that cool. <laughs> right, right. I'm like, you're that cool to us, Eve. Yes, that's true. That's true. <laughs> so this is one of the the early experiences that kind of a big part of her life and her family that had to do with that kind of foundation of activism. So in 1938, as you know, the family was doing pretty well successfully in business. And so they bought a house on the south side of Chicago in an all-white neighborhood. And so there were restri racially restrictive covenants there at the time in the city. And so the white residents that were there in the neighborhood and attempted to impose that restrictive covenant so they can bar them from living there. Mm -hmm. And so in these restrictive covenants, they had white property owners who agreed not to sell property to black people. Oh. And so that created this thing called the Black Belt in the south side of Chicago, mm -hmm. which is a thing that happens in a lot of cities. Right, right. But her family challenged that restrictive covenant. And so they did a test case for integrated housing, and they came out victorious in the 1940 U.S. Supreme Court decision in Hansberry versus Lee. And so that decision, it reversed an earlier decision on a legal technicality, but that wasn't, like, that wasn't the end of racially restrictive covenants, but it was a step forward, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Didn't, um, like, a mob form outside their house, and somebody threw a brick, and it almost hit Lorraine? It did. Yeah. That is significant. 1940s. Yeah. That is a huge significance in history. Oh, my goodness. Right. Mm -hmm. And so they did, yeah, they, they threw that brick, and it almost hit her, and they describe it as being able to have had ser caused serious damage if it had hit her. Mm -hmm. um, and there was a quote that she wrote about her mom in the New York Times saying that, her mother was patrolling the house all night with a loaded German Luger, which is a pistol. So, all right, mama. Which, you know, just is kind of like gives you the imagery of like what kind of experience they had living in an all white right. neighborhood at right. the time. I mean, and that is just like, I know that's an understatement. Like, <laughs> you, we know how much more that they had to deal with right. going into a place and knowing that you're not welcome there. Right. right. Having like, to fight like, for the right to actually live there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, that was her experience in Southside Chicago. So she ended up going to Inglewood High School, which is also in Chicago. She graduated from there in 1948. And so she, after she went to the University of Wisconsin for two years, from 1948 to 1950, and while she was there, she worked to integrate her dorm. Um, so she was already, you know, getting involved yeah. in things that had to do with social issues. She began participating in student theater, and she started studying plays and playwrights. And she was really inspired by a production of Sean O'Casey's Juno and the Paycock. So that kind of got her, like, spirit going when it came to theater. Mm -hmm. And in her second year, when she was at the university, 
she became the campus chairman of the Young Progressives of America. And she supported Henry Wallace's, the progressive Henry Wallace's 1948 candidacy. But kind of like after his loss, she became disaffected with party politics, which is understandable if you think about her like her leadership and like how her family thought of the black liberation movement and how she was like basically radicalizing. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that's a whole nother conversation in thinking about how views can change on liberation. Um, Just... No, I'm not even going to go there. But um, it's a whole <laughs> no, other conversation. Yeah. As the world continues and as we progress in, in the years, yeah, it changes. Yeah. Absolutely. Because mm-hmm. even though we are not fighting new things, <laughs> as I'm thinking about it today, um, but yeah, it changes because of the perspectives changes, people change, ideas change. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. Let's have an episode of that. Oh, Eve, you have to come back for that one too. Yeah. <laughs> We're all about I that. I love ideas. Yeah. <laughs> Always. <laughs> so... While she was at the university, she was in a theater class on set design in her second year, and the professor of that class gave her a D and said that she excelled in her work, but he didn't want to encourage a young Black woman to enter a white-dominated field. Um, Was that to hold her back or to, in his mind, protect her? I'm going to guess to protect her. That's how I read it, but that's speculation because I'm not exactly sure. Yeah, because I wonder, like, was it a malicious intent? Right. But I would say in this case, the intent kind of doesn't matter. Right. You're right. Absolutely. (laughs) But But that's a fair point to bring up. I just think it's so interesting when you look back and what people think they should do and what is right is so absurd in hindsight. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I mean, but we can think about things like that, what our parents do for us. Right, like, exactly. Their intent is there, but, like, the outcome protection or whatever, exactly. but then in general it holds people back, which is absolutely true. Right. That's still an interesting idea. And so after a little bit more schooling and realizing she wanted to pursue writing and theater, she moved to New York and she began attending the New School for Social Research. And so while she was in New York, this is the point where she links back up with Paul Robeson. So while she was in New York, she wrote articles for the Young Progressives of America magazine, and she became a reporter for Paul Robeson's radical magazine, oh. Freedom. Oh, okay. There, there yeah. we go. Boom, <laughs> he's back. <laughs> Making connections. That's right. <laughs> um, and she said that, at one point, she said that that would become the Journal of Negro Liberation. So she had a lot of faith in the journal. And she also did a ton while she was at the journal. So she covered the civil rights movement and other freedom movements around the world. She covered women's issues, social issues in New York. She covered the arts as well and a lot of other things. And she traveled on assignment around the country. And at the same time, she was really active in the fight for black rights. Um, And she got better at journalism during the time. She got better at interviewing. She got better at getting to the heart of stories. And she worked for 3170 a week. Um, uh, my, yeah, my brain was trying to, like, to calculate is this good or like, bad? Right. <laughs> like, trying to get in context in that time frame. Right. Like, how, what's the cost of living? We have none of that. inflation calculators in our head. Mine's not a good That we're using. Yeah, mine is mine's not like, very good. It just kind of fizzled. <laughs> <laughs> my brain was like, like panic. Right. <laughs> my brain just fizzled it out. Like, yeah, you're not going to get this. <laughs> it seems low to me now. Right. I will right. say that. Right. <laughs> I would say it's not a living wage right now. Yes. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah, nope, nope, nope. It's not like a day like, wage. Off a dollar menu in an already paid off car, essentially. Yeah. Essentially. I don't think the dollar menu... I don't know. That's a tangent. We don't need to get into. <laughs> then you die early because of heart failure. Yes. Yes. yes we know. Obesity. obesity. <laughs> this is also a tangent, but wasn't there a guy who ate, like, 
McDonald's yes. burgers for like a long yes, super, time. And that's super all he size ate. me, yeah. Super size me. Okay. And he then he almost like many health problems. Yeah. So um W. E. Du Bois. Oh, hey. Also wrote articles for the paper, and he taught Hansberry African history at the Jefferson School of Social Science, which was a Marxist school that was shut down by the U.S. government during the McCarthy era. And she wrote a paper, Lorraine Derrick wrote a paper for his course on the Belgian Congo. So these ideas of anti-colonialism were brewing at the time. She also wrote, um, one of her first reports at the magazine was, covered over 100 pro-communist black women who were called the Sojourners for Truth and Justice who were convened in Washington by Mary Church Terrell. Um, And she also covered the case of Willie McGee, a black man who was sentenced to death for raping a white woman. Yes. And so after she joined Freedom, and (laughs) this part is understandable. So this is where the FBI comes in. Of course. Oh, wow. I was waiting for yeah. them to come. Like, they've been <laughs> a little there. slow. Is it because yeah. she was a woman, they're like, she's not really a threat? Mm. Exactly. And this is still the be- kind of the beginning of her story. Like, we know her story was kind of cut short, but right. this is before we get to one of the biggest things she was known for, which is Raising the Sun, which we'll get to later. So after she joined the magazine and she went to a peace conference in Montevideo, Uruguay, the FBI started tracking her. And they felt the need to determine whether a raisin in the sun had any kind of communist bent. So even before it went to Broadway, they had agents watching it saying, like, this is what one agent said, the play contains no comments of any nature about communism as such, but deals essentially with Negro aspirations, the problems inherent in their efforts to advance themselves, and varied attempts at arriving at solutions. Arriving at solutions. So it's possible. But the but, that means it's still dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Meaning that they actually have the answer to get equality. Yeah. They're dangerous. FBI. (laughs) Doing. Well, I think this is a good place to pause (laughs) for an ad break. But we have a lot more for you. So stick around. Don't go away. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. So we've got a, an appearance by the FBI um, investigating this this work that that we're I think we're we're getting close to discussing. Yes, we are getting very close. Ooh. Um, but the FBI they they stayed on her. So she was on a list. She was on the list. She then, was, essentially. Yeah. So yeah, basically. Yeah. <laughs> um, her file was one thousand and twenty pages long. Oh my god. Whoa. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's like a, a merit for her. Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, that, it's kind that, of impressive. It's in me. that strange yeah. way, like you were saying. It's kind of impressive. Right. It is. There's probably a list somewhere, or there could have oh. been a list of oh, like yeah. all the names of people and like ranks of how many FBI mm. file, like how many pages were in their FBI file. I think James Baldwin was at one thousand eight hundred and something. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, I think Malcolm X was like oh, yeah. twice that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so. Yeah. I don't know if the, those are bragging rights to look like this one person <laughs> is a threat. That's phenomenal yeah. in a great way. Yeah, please don't phenomenal think. and terrible at the same right. time. Please, depending please on, please yeah. don't add to my papers. <laughs> right, please don't add papers on mine. I'm a circumspect person. I'm a cautious person, but I'm not a paranoid per- right. person. Is what I like to say. Right, but um, yeah. So they kept they kept following her throughout her life, like through a raisin in the sun. Through her fundraising that she did on behalf of SNCC, 
and other civil rights-related doings. Um, She called for abolition of the House of Un-American Activities Committee and through her second play on Broadway. So basically up from that point until her death, Mm -hmm. her later death. Mm -hmm. So back to the magazine, though. Um, By 1953, she was an editor at Freedom, but that same year she resigned from her post at Freedom to further pursue playwriting, and then she married Robert Nemiroff, who was a writer and a graduate student at New York University at that time. And so the two of them kind of, like, hit the streets together. Like, they picketed and they went to vigils for desegregation. And so they were, like, similar. They were vibing. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, Had similar ideals and, like, practices. And Freedom, as a note, went bankrupt in 1955, which was after she left, but they kind of like fizzled like a lot of other radical magazines have done. Mm -hmm. So this is the point where we kind of get to her artistry picking up. And so in 1956, her husband, Robert, was a writer on the song Cindy Oh Cindy, and he made a lot of money from that. And so the two of them, he and Lorraine, were able to use that money to kind of fund their writing, and they were able to devote all of their time to that, essentially. So she began a play that she called The Crystal Stare, and that turned into A Raisin in the Sun, which is the play that she got all those awards from and is her best-remembered work of art. Right. Right. Really significant in the film world. Very significant. Sydney Portier won an award for that. Academy Award? Is that right? I, I think so. Well, Sidney Poitier, he did, he did get a lot more acclaim right, um, after the movie did. came out. And that movie came out in 1961, after the, a few years after the play itself came out. So in 1957 was when she completed the manuscript for A Raisin in the Sun. The play is about a black family that lives in Southside Chicago in the 1950s. It kind of mirrors her own experience in living in a white neighborhood and having to deal with those kind of struggles, had themes of black identity and black liberation. So in March 1959, that's when the play opened on Broadway at the Ethel Barrymore Theater, making her the first black woman to have a play produced on Broadway. And so the play ran for 530 performances. And like we said earlier, put Sidney Poitier later, the when the movie came out, that put Sidney Poitier in the spotlight. And the play itself got her national recognition. So James Baldwin said the following about raising here I go with the quotes. Love them. (laughs) (laughs) I had never in my life seen so many Black people in the theater, and the reason was that never before in the entire history of the American theater had so much of the truth of Black people's lives been seen on the stage. Black people had ignored the theater because the theater had always ignored them. So I think it's interesting to think that this was not that long ago. Like, this is 1916, and he's saying, like, nobody had ever seen this Mm -hmm. on the stage. And it's like, well, all these black people were around creating art. So it's just kind of like a dissonance there of, like, thinking about how many black people were creating art and making plays and writing. Right. Um, And, you know, this is— It took this long to get that type of— It took this long. Um, So, yeah, that's just— I like that quote because it right. kind of like gave a little bit of context and insight right. to how people at the time who were going to see the plays and who were writing about it, the critics who were writing about it, and people who were reading about it felt about it. Right. Yeah. Again, with the the importance of of context and why this is a very important. Right. Well, they felt represented, and, and you know what? That's kind of 
even though it's still an argument right now for black people or people of color to be represented in the industry in itself. And it's still slow rolling after all of that even. Yeah. Yeah. And I did want to say just because uh, I think it's amazing. She was 29 when this debuted on Broadway. I know, right? And like we kind of alluded to, the critics really liked it as well. Yeah, they did. Um, They really loved A Raisin in the Sun. And it's like, it's classroom reading material, you know, now. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of students read them in high school. Yeah, it won the New York Drama Critics Circle Award. Um, It ran for 19 months, translated into 35 languages. And like you were saying, um, in 1961, the film version got a special award at the Cannes Film Film Festival. Yeah. Yeah, so that's, that's phenomenal. It pretty is, big deal. It is the the ball just kept on rolling. Basically, like it's just really cool that that could be turned into a film right. and still do well. And just a testament to the how good the content and the art was, and how good of a playwright and writer she was. Yeah, it's still a standard in the movie industry is one of the best, and even in the like uh, entertainment industry is one of the most forward thinking. Yeah, um, material. Yeah, and um, the the people she was competing against or the play was competing against in um, the New York Drama Critics Circle Award was like Eugene O'Neill and Tennessee Williams. So So not only was she one of the first, the first black person, Uh but she was one of the earliest women. Yes. That double whammy. I think there were five or four women who won it before her. So not that many. (sighs) Wow, yeah. That's so significant. Mm Mm-hmm. So she also wrote other plays, and those plays didn't do quite as well. One was The Sign in Sidney Brewstein's Window. That one, the last performance of that was The Day She Died. Um, but that one received mixed reviews, basically. Uh-huh. Um, people weren't really feeling it, definitely not feeling it as much as they felt a raisin in the sun. And then she had another one called Les Blancs. That one was staged after her death, um, and that one wasn't well-received, kind of at all. Her work was r- radical. Like, it wasn't really, there was a lot of people who didn't accept her work, essentially. Mm -hmm. So when NBC commissioned her to write a TV drama about slavery for a commemoration of the Civil War, her resulting work was The Drinking Gourd, and they deemed it too controversial, and they discontinued it. So so as I mentioned earlier, she raised funds for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC, Mm -hmm. and she wrote the text for a SNCC photo book that was called The Movement, Documentary of a Struggle for Equality. So more of these ways that we see that she was participating in activism. And so Nina Simone, who, if you don't know, is an amazing singer, musician, and activist. And she said they were buddies. So she's just cool. Like, yeah. She was in a circle of coolness. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she said the following about Lorraine. We never talked about men or clothes or other such inconsequential things when we got together. It was always Marx, Lenin, and revolution, real girls talk. Yes. Oh, I love it. Yes. I thought y'all would like that quote. Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, that's awesome. <laughs> so something that was often glossed over about her life was uh, how she identified as lesbian. Her queerness was glossed over. Mm-hmm. Her her story was kind of straight-washed, as mm-hmm. it's been called. So she supported the lesbian liberation movement. She wrote about radical feminism, misogyny, and homophobia. And she often linked homophobia with sexism and racism. And so she kind of took what we call now intersectionality into account before it was being termed. So in a letter to the latter, which was a subscription-based lesbian magazine, she used a pen name, 
And she said, I wanted to leap into the questions raised on heterosexually married lesbians. I am one of those. How could we ever begin to guess the numbers of women who are not prepared to risk a life alien to what they have been taught all their lives to believe was their natural destiny? So a lot of biographies or a lot of, like, texts on her don't really— I mean, now it's better, but, like, don't really mention or haven't mentioned that part of her life. But she also kept it very private. There weren't many people who knew about it. Only some people in her life knew about her sexuality. And it's also an understatement to say that, like, it wasn't that easy to be a black gay woman at the time. I was going to say, she already has the struggle of being a black woman in that time frame. And then on top of that— Right. Her queerness on it, and she's like, it's going to be harder for me to communicate yeah. all the things because one thing could be a block for one person, as it can still be this, that way this day, but yeah. obviously it's more significant when it was completely considered as a deviant behavior. Right, and she did kind of like, she really struggled with that kind of balance, and she did talk about like the respectability of like uh, when it comes to appearance when trying to manage those identities. Mm. Um, so that's a conversation that, I'm sure she had a lot. She thought a lot about it herself in conversations she had with herself um, in terms of that balance. And so she also kept in contact with one of the first lesbian organizations in the country, which was the Daughters of Belitis. And she also subscribed to the magazine One. um, And she corresponded with women who she had close relationships with. So there were these lists that she wrote of her likes, her dislikes, her regrets, her prides that she did for several years, um, which are... I wish I could quote them, but like yeah. it's just there's too there's there's too many. So many I mean, I, if you want to go read them, I would highly recommend you going to read their like the her likes and dislikes and all those those lists that she wrote because they're just so personal, right? You know, mm-hmm. like they're just I so love the, that honest. kind of insight. So honest, yeah. It's cool to know that we know about all her accomplishments and how, all her achievements, but she had also her how own she felt about it. Yeah, how she felt about it. Like we know her her struggles and. She mentions her homosexuality. Like, in one of them, she said, she puts under her dislikes my homosexuality. Mm -hmm. So you just kind of get that insight into, like, a person is a person. And at the end of the day, even though they have this public persona and presence and all this public work, doesn't mean that they're perfect. Right. And that they're not struggling with their own personal things in addition to all the social issues she was thinking about. It's true. It's not just like I'm this strong, passionate woman who is a figure to be reckoned with, but I also have these insecurities and anxieties much like everyone else. So that's really encouraging to be like, oh, good. (laughs) I can do things. (laughs) Right. All these regrets. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, actually, my list All these regrets. (laughs) Um, But wow, that, yeah, that is so personal and so opening like I wonder her mindset and how open she had to be and honest with herself even to be like this is what I have problems with myself and this is where I really love myself because either one of those are hard to talk about definitely yeah Um, and to now for them to be on display right (laughs) right which did she mean to put them on display I don't think she meant to put them on display, but they were in an exhibition okay Mm -hmm. and and honestly this is a tangent too but this is one thing that I 
am concerned about. I do not want my diary. Right. That's what I'm thinking, too. I was like, oh, oh, God. I have so many embarrassing things in my old diaries. And I, I would love to have the sort of prominence to where people want to know these things about right. me. Mm. But I don't want them to know oh these God. things about right. me. Right. We were talking about how we wrote poetry way back in the day. And I'm, and she was like, we're going we're gonna to read these. I was like, no. Oh, no. <laughs> yes. That's going to be something I really kind of wish it was gone. <laughs> I used to do what I called a purge at the end of every year. And I had a bucket, a metal bucket, and I would burn all of everything I wrote. And now I actually really regret it. Yeah, I, I was going to really say, I couldn't it. do that. Is that because you would want to read them again or because you want people to share them? I would want, I want to read that 458 book I wrote. You burned before, that? Yes, before, it was 458 pages. I'm sure it was terrible, right. but I wrote it. <laughs> but that's your words and your efforts and your time. Yeah, that's kind of heartbreaking. I just want to know what. Middle school Annie thought she had 458 pages to write about. Oh, wow. Uh, That would be a deep insight for sure. Anyway, this isn't about Annie's regrets. (laughs) (laughs) I understand understand where you're coming from. Next bonus episode, everybody writes their regrets and talk about it. (laughs) Then you burn them. And then we burn them. (laughs) In the studio. (laughs) And then we're fired again. We're banned from the building. (laughs) So many ways. (laughs) All of the network gets picked out, and then we're double fired. Oh, no. <laughs> well, well, we'll pause here for one more quick break for a word from our sponsor. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. So, I feel like we're... we're Coming too close here on on um, Lorraine's story, there are a couple things that I would like to touch on. I feel like you probably have some more that you would like to touch on. A little bit. All right. <laughs> uh, is this like a negotiation? You go <laughs> first. <laughs> I'll go first. Okay. I will concede. So in 1963, she was part of a group of prominent black people, um, including folks like James Baldwin and Harry Belafonte, who met with Attorney General Robert Kennedy to get him to help protect civil rights in the South. And so when the group said that the federal government wasn't doing enough to protect black civil rights, Kennedy didn't agree, and Lorraine ended up leaving the room. There's a story that James Baldwin tells about Lorraine, like, walking out. Protesting. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah. Walk out. Yeah. But then after that, President Kennedy did stuff with civil rights. And so at a meeting in 1964, she also called for the white liberal to stop being a liberal and become an American radical, which I feel like relates to so many conversations that we're having today. Right. Absolutely. So that's more of the things that she did in terms of being involved in activism in her community. So she died of pancreatic cancer in 1965. She was 34. Over 700 people attended her funeral. Some stood outside in the sleet. And uh, she had previously criticized, um, So again, she had all these cool friends. Right. Um, she had, uh, Malcolm X had previously criticized her for having a, a white husband, and she was, like, not there for it. <laughs> and he apologized, and he came to her funeral even when he was under a public death threat. And Nina Simone sung at her funeral, and To Be Young, Gifted, and Black was a tribute to her. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's an amazing song as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Nina Simone was on the list, too, if I yeah. remember correctly. I on the FBI so. list. Yeah. 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 She was diagnosed in 1963. She was struggling with that cancer for a couple of years, and she divorced her husband in 1964. But they had been separated for a while at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, but even after they had separated, they continued to collaborate professionally. This is 
another thing and thinking about how she thought about herself and the work that she did, even after all of her activism and her journalism and all of the art that she did, she still kind of questioned her contributions and her worthiness. She said, do I remain a revolutionary intellectually without a doubt, but am I prepared to give my body to the struggle or even my comforts? This is what I puzzle about. And she went on to say a little bit later, when I get my health back, I think I shall have to go into the South to find out what kind of revolutionary I am. And that that quote really got to me because yeah. just thinking about how much Black people put their bodies on the line. Right. And different people have different roles in the movement and in the struggle. Right. Mm-hmm. And the fact that she was this, she was still young at this right. point, like right before she died. Um, Cause this, yeah, very young, and she was. This is she was saying in this at the point where she was struggling with cancer at the end of her years, mm-hmm. and questioning all of the work that she did to reverse national ideas about race, to reverse racism, to to think about homophobia, to to say, oh, well, am I a revolutionary? I have to go. I have to go put my body on the line. You know. Very interesting. That whole idea of there's more I could do. Yeah. And then possibly a little bit of imposter syndrome. Oh, yes. Right there. Mm -hmm. I mean, again, that's comforting to know that this strong powerhouse has some of the same fears that we do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So she was writing, it's very sad, but she was writing about her diminishing health. And she noted that things just weren't looking good at the end of her life. And she said, like, she she felt like she was being sucked away. And that she wouldn't mind something drastic like death, is what she said. Mm. It's like, I don't mean operation, I mean death. Mm-hmm. So that hit me, that hit me hard. Yeah. Right. But she, the, like Annie said, she died in 1965, and her ex-husband became the executive of her, the executor of her literary estate. And there's a lot of controversy in terms of the influence that he had over her literary works and how he changed them and, like, what he kept secret, like, putting a lockbox lock and, like, was it made, only made available to certain people, things like that. Um, so that's all the things that happened posthumously that he did posthumously or that they did because I think he and his family did afterward kind of own that estate um, is a huge point of contention. Mm. So... In thinking about all the things that Lorraine didn't, wasn't able to get to, but did, obviously, as we all know in here as creators, we write a lot of things down and maybe don't finish them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's you guys. I just sit back and look at you. <laughs> <laughs> I do bad poetry. Move on. It's hey. I can already tell you it's not bad. <laughs> <laughs> So she was working on a bunch of projects that remained unfinished at the time of her death, including an epic opera about Toussaint L'Ouverture and an idle biographical novel called All the Dark and Beautiful Warriors. Ooh. That's a great title. That is. Wow. She also had written down ideas for other plays, including one about the pharaoh Akhenaten and another one on an 18th century writer, Mary Wollstonecraft, and another one on Native Americans called Laughing Boy, and one on the fiction writer Charles Chestnut's novel, The Marrow of Tradition. So she had a lot of works that weren't done. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe she was, you know, hoping to finish them. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. unfortunately, she died at 34. Mm. Yeah, all of those I w- sound amazing. Right. Like, I really wish I could get a hand on mm-hmm. some of these non-existent works. Mm-hmm. was able to finish that. 
the the person I was talking about earlier uh, who's writing the book, Amani Perry, she she wrote Looking for Lorraine, The Radiant and Radical Life of Lorraine Hansberry. And she said of Lorraine, she was a feminist before the feminist movement. She identified as a lesbian and thought about LGBTQ organizing before there was gay rights movement. She was an anti-colonialist before independences had been won in Africa and the Caribbean. So she was really ahead of her time, right. as they say. That's exactly. But it's it's important. A lot of this stuff is important to us now. Mm-hmm. So um, I always want to ask you, like, why did you choose this person? And I feel this was a very timely and excellent choice. But Thank why you. did you choose yes. this person? How did you decide this was the one? I like that inflection you put on one. The one. one. (laughs) Um, So her birthday was not that long ago on May uh, May 19th. So we did an episode on her for this day in history class. And being selfish again, I wanted to, I just wanted to spend more time with her story. Mm -hmm. And she is just so inspirational. So like you said, a lot of her work is relevant today. I'm always partial to artists. So there's that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But it's just worth learning more about her and it's worth hearing more about her and it's always worth uplifting stories like hers. Right. Absolutely. Um, and we're so glad that I, I'm personally very glad you chose this because I yeah. thought it was fascinating. That's um, why I had questions. I was like, give me all of that. <laughs> give me all of that information. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> yeah, we're so glad that you you took the time and joined us. Is there anything else you want to add before we close up here? No, I think that's all. Okay. Eve, you're wonderful. You are are wonderful. You're (laughs) wonderful. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us. Where can the listeners find you? So you can look up This Day in History class on social media. You can find it on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can also find Unpopular Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, too. Yeah, and we'll make sure to uh, tag you for all of the things. Thank you. Social media yes. things when we highlight the show on our uh, social medias as yes. well. Thank yes. you. And you can, if it wasn't clear, these are podcasts that you can listen yes. to and that you should listen to. Thank you again, Eve, for joining us. You're amazing, Eve. Thank you for having me, both of you. And um, you can find us on our social media. You can find us on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast and on Instagram at StuffMomNeverToldYou. You can also email us at StuffMediaMomStuff at iHeartMedia.com. If you have any female first for this recurring segment you'd like to suggest, we would love to hear them. Come at me. Thanks, as always, to our super producer, Andrew Howard. Andrew Howard. And thanks to you for listening. Thank you. Stuff I'm Never Told is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 